Appreciate it. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Sandy, and I'm an alcoholic. How you all doing? I want to thank Barbara for asking me out here, and I want to tell you how nice it is to be with you all tonight. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the magic that happens when drunks get together. I just love the fellowship that um, I stumbled into some years ago. Whenever I hear the promises read, my sponsor told me to stop doing this, but I never listened to him. Uh, <laughs> I, I always think of this for the trivia, for those of you that like AA trivia out there. Did you ever, do you find any conflict between chapter 5 where it says half measures avail us nothing and the promises where it says we'll be amazed before we're halfway through? Just <laughs> something to think about tonight, you know what I mean? I can just see new people calling their sponsor. Could you answer that question, please? Um, I hope tonight to spend most of the time talking about AA. You know how sometimes we get talking about our stories, and um, I really feel good about AA. I just um, think it's the most remarkable social movement that has ever been seen on the planet Earth. And uh, when we're in the middle of it, I think sometimes we miss the real magnificence of this thing. Um, miracles are so commonplace in Alcoholics Anonymous that we almost yawn as they occur. You know what I mean? Someone new comes in and their entire life gets straightened out and we just go, well, naturally. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I, I love being around new people and watching that first three months there's just such a transition that seems to take place and you start seeing it in people's eyes and they're so um, almost hopeless when we first arrive here and um, geez especially the women women come in they look terrible it just they're just awful they look just like you know they don't even care about themselves anymore it's just it's really and then you see that same person about three months later and you think you're looking at her daughter. It's uh, just remarkable what happens in inside because that's what sobriety is. It's an inside job and something is touched when we're new and we get in here and we don't even know what it is but we know we made a connection. There's just a connection that's made. You go home, you try and explain AA to your friends and, and they say, geez, you're looking so much better. What is AA? What's going on? And you, so you try and explain. Do you ever try to explain to your friends what, why you're so excited about this? And they say, well, sit down. Let's take an hour or so and really tell me because I'd really like to learn. And you go, well, we get together at 830 at night down in a smoky church basement and get a cup of coffee and we sit around a table and well, somebody's the leader and they think up a topic, you know, like resentment. And then we sit there and we talk about resentment for an hour and we all go home. And they go, geez, it doesn't sound like uh, anything I'd be interested in. I mean, it just <laughs> doesn't seem like that should do anything. It doesn't seem like that should cause this incredible results. But it does. It just does, and it never seems to fail. There's something incredibly magic about AA meetings. I mean, you can walk in ahead of time with the weight of the world on your shoulders and you personally are convinced that this time 
the meeting isn't going to make a dent in this tremendous self-pity and resentment that we're walking in with. And you sort of time it. And you're saying, well, it's half hour into the meeting and nothing's happened yet. And it uh, goes around, your favorite people say something and you didn't even like it and you're convinced that nothing good will happen here tonight. And then some new person says something. You know what I mean? You never know where it's going to happen. Somebody just says, oh, I've only been here a month and I just want to tell you I love you all. Maybe that's all they said. And that was it. Something got in your heart and you just felt like it was yanked right out of you. And when it was yanked right out, so was the resentments. And so was the self-pity. And you walked out of that meeting wondering what you were so upset about when you came in there. But if you tried to explain it to someone, it just doesn't seem to be explainable. And so uh, we can explain it to ourselves because it's all happened to us. So AA really is a remarkable, remarkable phenomenon. And I'm so grateful that I was stumbled in here in 1964. You know, when we get here, it seems like the end of the world. You know what I mean? You talk to all the people when you first arrive in there, the worst thing that ever happened to me, and I got sent to AA. And then you talk to that same person about three months later, and they go, you know what the best thing that ever happened to me? So we, here was the worst thing turned into the best thing. And it's almost probably the first paradox that we run into in the uh, fellowship, you know what I mean? Where it's just the opposite of what we thought it was. And I'm sure if you were arrived here by having a cop pull you over, there's a thousand drunk drivers out that night and they had to pick on you, you know what I mean? It was that type of night. You probably didn't see that cop as a messenger from God at all, did you? You know what I mean? You just... <laughs> Had a big resentment over this guy singling me out. I mean, you know, and I was actually wasn't even weaving. And he, I knew I shouldn't have breathed into that thing. And then you went to the judge, and the judge gave you that routine. Well, you got your choice: six months in jail or one AA meeting. You remember this one? And the guy stands out there, and everybody's in the court expecting he'll answer it just like that. And he stands there and thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks. <laughs> Well, how could somebody be wrestling with this particular problem? But in order to understand, you have to get inside the young man's head. He's a bar drinker. He's been drinking this bar for years and years and years. And over the years, people in that bar have gone to jail, and they've gone to AA. The people that go to jail come back. So he has a big dilemma, you know, what happens to people? They go to AA and they just disappear off the face of the earth. Because <laughs> we don't know anything about AA before we come here. I didn't know anything about it. I thought it was a government agency. I really did. I think I heard that somewhere in the Marine Corps. Oh, yeah, a guy went to AA and they assign an agent to you. You get a tattoo that says you're an alcoholic, official alcoholic, and if they ever see you in a bar drinking, you are never seen again. They just grab you and they're sent off to the Soviet Union or somewhere. Just, that's what I thought AA was, so I certainly didn't want to come here. And uh, like everyone else, I got here by default. You know what I mean? It wasn't a decision. It was not an intellectual decision. I haven't heard too many speakers get up here and say, well, I was sitting around the house one night, 
got to thinking about my drinking. I said, hey, you know, if I keep on drinking, I could probably get in trouble someday. I think I'll just nip this in the bud and zip down to AA and <clears throat> just join in right away. I'd be very suspicious of that particular person, as a matter of fact. Most of us came here against our own better judgment. And um, a lot of it nowadays is the traffic cops and the judges and doctors. Uh, I, in my case, I had a grand mal seizure. And those things will get your attention. They're just <clears throat> biting your tongue in half. And I was in uh, the Marine Corps, the good old United States Marine Corps at the time, where I had been uh, hanging around is the best thing I could probably use. Other people had a career going. I was sort of just hanging around in there, trying to stay out of trouble. I was flying their airplanes. Um, but mostly I was an alcoholic, you know what I mean? And uh, for alcoholics, you know, for a practicing alcoholic to say he has a career is a misnomer. Being an alcoholic is the career. And uh, being in the Marine Corps was a hobby. Because it didn't get that, my mind wasn't free to focus on the Marine Corps that many hours of the day. I was so trying to keep track of the lies I was telling and how I was feeling and all of the emotional roller coasters and physical problems. And um, I eventually had gotten, uh, after a number of years of drinking and flying and all kinds of crazy stories, I had uh, gotten so bad flying airplanes, I was experiencing withdrawal symptoms in the planes. I hadn't become a daily drinker yet. You know, you start letting that alcohol wear off, and it was just um, very bad. And so I would suffer um, loss of vision, heart palpitations, extreme sweating. I'd, my eyes would be sweating so much I couldn't hardly see. And I'm the only one in the plane. And I started having a basic distrust of the pilot of the plane that I was in. You know what I mean? There was sort of, there was me, the passenger, and me, the pilot. And it was just very frightening. And these jets are, um, you, you know, you got to be awake and alert. And I'm up there, you know, just going, well, I wonder where we're going today. And so I have a lot of interesting stories along those lines, but I don't want to scare too many people. The scary part is that um, uh, at the end of this 12 years of flying and, and then getting into this type of shape, um, I finally went to the flight surgeon because I had almost crashed a couple of them and uh, told him I was having these terrible heart things just racing and I'm losing my vision and almost passing out and this and that. So I was sent off to a special board of flight surgeons to diagnose what this problem was. And this was in the early 60s. And at that point, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, did not have a diagnosis of alcoholism. There was no one was an alcoholic. Are you anywhere? And so um, I went through all of this stuff, and I can remember the doctors. They would check. I had high blood pressure, alcohol in my breath. Um, and I was down there for two weeks, going in every day just to be observed by some specialist or another and went through everything you can imagine from, um, you know, checking every possible test and they finally couldn't find anything that they could diagnose, so they left it up to the psychiatrist. They said, we're gonna let you diagnose this guy. What is it wrong? 
And I was written up as childhood fear of flying. That was the <laughs> official diagnosis, and I was sent back. And I knew that that wasn't the, the thing. I knew that, you know, I was having all these crazy problems, but it didn't have anything to do with childhood fear of flying. And I came back and waited orders. <clears throat> what they're going to do, uh, they, they said I couldn't fly anymore. And that, was, that just reduced my identity down to nothing. Um, because back then, who you are was so important. I mean, that identity, and without that, you weren't anybody. And fighter pilot at least made me feel like I was somebody, even though deep down inside, I knew I wasn't anybody. But I had some people fooled. And um, after about three months, my orders came through, and I was to be retrained as an air traffic controller. And so... The Marine Corps had a problem. Uh, they had me going through air traffic control school and somehow I made it through there. Us drunks are amazing. Some of the things that we can do while pra being practicing alcoholics because it's a very difficult school. It's very hard work and it's, you have to think a lot and you have a lot of pressure. I made it through the school and drinking and my last two years of drinking was as an air traffic controller but fortunately I was sent overseas and I was the officer in charge and uh, they didn't let me near the radar screens to bring in because the air traffic controllers are bringing in the planes in bad weather when the pilots can't see the runway and I can remember sitting down there and I would have to cover one eye you know because I was seeing two runways you're on glide path I think if there's any pilots in the audience, I'm sure you're getting a little nervous just thinking about the idea that there's an alcoholic air traffic controller down there and you can't see the runway. Um, but in any event, that was sort of my career. Uh, I got here, as I said, because I had a convulsion. I was attending a career school in Quantico, Virginia, and uh, was having to, that was the very end of my drinking, and I was just almost schizophrenic. I mean, I was really freaking out. I couldn't find the school. I was starting to have incredible hallucinations. And I'd pull up to the gate. I mean, I'm in this school, and I can't find it on the base. And I'd ask the guard at the gate, where's that junior school? And he'd say, it's right up there, Captain. And I'd go, God damn, they keep moving it, you know. And I'd, <laughs> I'd go up there, and I couldn't remember what classroom I was in, couldn't remember the combination of my locker, didn't know where I sat in the classroom. It was really something uh, that and the, the people up there didn't know how to handle this said, Jesus what's the matter with this guy you can't remember you know so there's still it's pretending well maybe he'll be alright tomorrow but I can remember just getting worse and worse I didn't realize I was just on the edge of a, se a seizure and when it finally came I was sent off to um, Bethesda Naval Hospital to see what had caused it and about uh, three days into being up in the hospital I went into the DTs which explained the seizure, and was put in a straitjacket and was locked up for six months in the nut ward because they didn't have any alcohol programs, and it was in that nut ward that uh, my angel from heaven came walking in. And it seems that Alcoholics Anonymous had been in the Bethesda Naval Hospital in the early 60s, and the psychiatrists had determined that it wasn't doing any good, and they stopped the AA meetings for a couple of years. Um, and the Bethesda, Maryland AA crowd had come back in. They got a new head psychiatrist. 
in there, and they came back and made another overture, and they said, you know, you've got a lot of alcoholics in the Navy, and they end up in this nut ward, and you ought to let us bring an AA meeting. All right, I'll let you bring one meeting in a week on Tuesday nights. And so this, unbeknownst to me, I've been locked up in there about three months, and uh, all of a sudden AA is back on the schedule. So the way I got to Alcoholics Anonymous was I was up locked up in the nut ward, and a corpsman came into the nut ward one night, and he said, all drunks fall in. And so that's how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was, I was over in clay class working on an ashtray, and um, <laughs> you know, whenever I get a crowd this big, I'm still looking for a guy who was up there with me. If there's any, he's a Navy commander, and you were in that nut ward in 1964, and we were both in the finals in the ashtray-making contest. <laughs> and I had uh, clearly won, and they were judging it the next morning. I showed it to all the other patients, and they said, yours was nothing compared to mine. And you came over to my room that night with a big cigar. I know you remember it if you're here. And you started smoking and talking, and then, you know, you acted like you got to put your cigar out, and you put it in my ashtray and knocked it on the floor and broke it. And then you won the best ashtray uh, thing up in the nut ward. And I figured anybody who would pull a stunt like that could be an alcoholic, and maybe all these years later you're in AA, and this could still be on your mind. <laughs> And uh, I've totally forgotten about it myself. <laughs> but you might be, you know, coming up to the eighth and ninth step. And you say, geez, if I could just find that Marine captain, I could make that amend. So I'll be around after the meeting. And... But in any event, I just shared that, that the corpsman was my little messenger. He was the one, just, you know, picked me out. And I didn't think that he was there delivering the greatest news that I probably will ever receive. This little guy came walking in there, just like the big cop that pulled you over, or the doctor who told you you're going to die soon. That they were delivering the message that we're going to let you out of hell and we're going to start you down a path to a world you never dreamed existed, that you are going to find treasures of love and companionship that you never dreamed of would ever be yours. That was what that corpsman was doing, and it just didn't look like it. You know, it's just this, this whole spiritual journey is so filled with paradoxes that you just can't see them as they're happening. And I think that my sobriety has been that way. It has really been that way. Just a little bit about what my relationship with alcohol. Um, alcohol was, for me, a higher power. In every sense, it was a higher power. Uh, number one, it was something I had faith in. I didn't have faith in many things in my life, but I had faith in vodka. I mean, I had 
faith in it. I mean, boy, when there may be a lot of things that'll let you down, but vodka won't. I mean, man, it's there when the going gets rough, and it always works. And just knowing that it was around sometimes would be enough to make me feel better. I could be very nervous and the world is closing in. If I could look out the window and there's my car in the parking lot and there's a bottle of vodka in the glove compartment, just knowing that I could be there in about 11 seconds made me feel better. Didn't even have to drink it. Just look out there and go, ah, my friend is right there. Knowing that it was there, I had an old friend up in Washington named Charlie Bruton from Alabama. I remember years ago, he's been dead quite a few years, but I used to relate to him. He'd say on Sundays, he'd drive over to Baltimore and he'd park on a hill overlooking a distillery where the smoke was coming out of the smokestack. He just said, as long as he could see that smoke coming out of there, he felt the world was okay. Because <laughs> that supply was going to be, you know, that was his beginning of the pipeline to the package store and that smoke went out there could be a problem about six months down the road and so it gave him that tremendous peace of mind and that's what it did for me was um, alcohol was that important because alcohol fixed the problem it didn't cause a problem sure there were problems that it caused up on the on the side but essentially alcohol fixed the problem for me and I think a lot of people that um, study alcoholism miss this point. They miss that point. They focus in on what alcohol does to us, and they look at the liver damage, and they look at all the arrests, and conclude that that's the fundamental area to study if you're going to understand uh, alcoholism. And really all we're looking at when we see that is sort of alcohol damage or something that has very little to do with alcoholism because the alcoholism is what alcohol does for me that it doesn't do for other people and what it did it solved problems it was the answer to things I started drinking with a guy I saw Dave uh, here tonight um, from Dallas and my roommate in college is from Dallas and we started drinking together I, well he started before I did but we drank together at, at um, Yale I went I grew up in New Haven and we both went to Yale and um, we drank a lot, but he wasn't an alcoholic. And he saw all the trouble I got into. We stayed in touch over the years, and then when I got sober, he got real happy about it because I was his old friend, and he liked me better, put back together again. He was very grateful to AEA for helping his friend. And so whenever I'd go to Dallas, he'd go to meetings with me. We'd make him an honorary member. But he liked it, and he liked the AA people that he met. And so I enjoyed talking with Roy a lot about this. And so one year, I don't know, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I said, Roy, let me ask you something. I said, you and I started drinking together, and we, Jesus, it seemed like we were pretty heavy hitters there for a while, and, but we sure were different. And I said, now you're 50 years old, or whatever he was then. I said, if you had to describe alcohol, just to some reporter asked you to describe alcohol in your life, what would you say? And so he thought about it for a couple of minutes, and he said, well, I know what I'd said. One thing I would say for sure uh, he's a real Epicurean type guy, and he just said, um, alcohol makes food taste better. And I remember going, Jesus, I never would have thought of that one. And, uh, alcohol makes food taste better. And I was thinking to myself, going down or coming up? I mean, you know. When, 
the hell are we talking about? Alcohol makes food taste better. Yeah, you know, and then he said, well, and then uh, he said, the other thing I'd say about it is they come home from work at the end of the day and um, have a drink, mix a little highball and have a drink and then go up and take a shower and sort of, it's a transition from the work day and then I play with the kids and we go out and have dinner and I look at it that way and I saw some little relationship to transition. And uh, then he said, and then once in a while we'll have a group of people over and we'll have some drinks and it's just sort of a social elixir and people feel a little bit better and that's it. And that's about the total summation of alcohol. He never said, oh, alcohol? Alcohol's the secret of life. <laughs> he had no relationship to that because alcohol didn't do that for him. Alcohol added a little bit here, made food taste better, did a few things, but it didn't solve any problems for Roy. So he wasn't an alcoholic, but it sure solved problems for me. It solved the fundamental problems of life. And I think the fundamental problems of life are trying to become a grown-up. I mean, I think that's the basic challenge in life. Not many people who arrive in AA are familiar with the term, even remotely uh, grown-up. I mean, that is not the term that you find somebody just joining AA. Well, he drinks a lot, but I'll tell you one thing, he's a real grown-up. Whoa, never do you hear that. Because we found a way to avoid growing up. We found a shortcut to growing up. Why go through the pains of growing up when you can drink and be there? You know what I mean? There's a line in the, I forget what it was, the 12 and 12 of the big way. Everybody, every boy wants to grow up and be president. And I think it ought to be changed to every alcoholic boy wants to be president. And leave out that growing up stuff. And just I'd like to shortcut and get there. And so I guess for me, I was a typical person growing up, a nervous, skinny teenager, wandering around, what's going on? Afraid of women, don't understand sexuality, all of the things you have to deal with in order to move on through life. And uh, maybe it, it sort of overpowered me, and I just really felt different from the other people, and I didn't share well, so I never talked to anybody about anything. Most of the information I got about life, I got off of bathroom walls. You know, geez, I didn't know that. My God. This is a hell of a world we're living in here, you know. It's just, you collect all this stuff and you don't share it with anybody. You got a lot of crazy ideas that are up in your head. And then I totally misunderstood church when I was in church. Um, my sister sitting right next to me, she loved it. And I got totally terrified by it all. And so, but I never talked to anybody. So I just, um, I think a lot of us are great at internalizing life. And we just have it inside there and we re-experience it. And it grows and our feelings get larger and larger and fears get bigger and resentment gets bigger and insecurity gets bigger. And it seemed like it was reaching a bursting point because I was making no progress in figuring life out. The older I got, the more pressure I felt. And, and the older you get, you're supposed to be figuring this out. And I looked around, you know, and everybody else seemed to have life figured out. That old comparing other people's outsides with my insides. And I just wondered, Jesus, it's just every year there's more pressure. There's just more tension until alcohol came along. And then alcohol came in and only took about three drinks. 
And I looked around, and the entire world changed. I was in a group of 40 or 50 guys who were supposed to be meeting each other at some function at school, and uh, nobody wanted to talk to me. All the groups had subdivided up, and they were all chatting away. And there was one guy left out, me, and I'm going around the outside of the room going, no, I don't fit in here, I obviously don't fit in there. I don't fit in anywhere. And I'm getting ready to leave because that's what you do when you're anxious. You either leave or get more anxious. And I picked up a drink and drank it, picked up another drink and drank it, and the third drink, I turned around and what I experienced was those 50 guys left and they were replaced by 50 of the most wonderful people you have ever seen. Alcohol didn't change me, it changed the world that I lived in. It made the world wonderful. Jeez, I love this world. And uh, you couldn't hold me back. You talk about the promises that we've read here tonight. Well, I had the promises of whiskey. I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I knew how to go to each one of those groups and tell jokes and just fit right in with those people. I had that sense with that third drink kicked in. I said, these guys are lucky. I'm here. You know what I mean? I, they, wait till I come around and talk to all of them. They're going to be so damn excited. I mean, you talk about the opposite of the way I had been feeling before. It was very powerful stuff. Of course, later that night, I'm puking all over the rug. Um, got a hangover, feeling terrible. Got up the next day, and I'm faced with a choice. Right away, I'm thinking. I'm going, boy, that was some experience you had last night. All of us, I think, remember the first time we drank. We may not remember the first time we did a lot of other things, but most of us remember the first time we drank because it was such a significant event. And I remember the tremendous elation and then the tremendous sickness and the hangover that lasted all day because I'm just getting used to alcohol. So I was left with a choice. Well, you want to do that again? And it wasn't even a close decision. I said, all that puking and this headache and the stomach and the hot flashes, that's a small price to pay for what I experienced last night. As the years went on, the price got bigger and the fun got less, and I still told myself that's a small price to pay for what I'm getting from alcohol. So alcohol was giving me tremendous perspective on life. It was my secret weapon. When I had alcohol in me, I wasn't alone anymore. You see, I had the feeling without alcohol, I was like a battery, you know, that you buy for your car, and you didn't forget to put the water in it, and it doesn't work. It's missing the magic ingredient, and that's how I felt without alcohol in me, that there was something basically missing, and no, I just couldn't function. I said, this isn't fair. It's like tying one hand behind a guy's back and telling him to go play basketball or box or whatever. I said, this isn't fair. I'm not all here. Only when I had alcohol. Then I felt like there. Now I'm a total human being. So I guess I had um, figured out some of life inadvertently that we weren't supposed to be able to get along on our own. That there was something missing. That we were supposed to be relying on something greater than ourselves. My only choice was that I'd made a bad choice there. I had the wrong higher power. I had vodka. And uh, this was not the best choice of higher powers, even though it had a tremendous power to make my life better and to enrich it. I mean, it really did give me the perspective that um, 
that, light, that the world was indeed a wonderful place. It was artificial, but at least it gave me a, a chance to see that there was something nice in the world because when the alcohol was gone, so was my ability to see anything of comfort in the world. It was replaced with that intimidating, as Clancy calls it, the technicolor went away and it was a gray world and it was filled with hostility and people sort of glaring and so on down. And so for me, alcohol did some wonderful things that were necessary in my survival. I don't look upon it as uh, something that took away a lot or anything like that. It was uh, an answer, and I had not found the real answer. So that's sort of my relationship with alcohol, one of great dependence, great faith, and had um, literally turned my life over to alcohol. When I went into a package store, I'd look at those bottles of vodka on the shelf, I'd study them real close. You know, it's transparent. You can hold that stuff up. It looks like water. Shake it and look in there. You even smell it if you could get the top off. But there's no way you would know what's in store for you by looking at it. You had to drink it. It's like checking a book out of the library, you know, an adventure book. You don't know what's in there. You know, it's going to be a great adventure if you read it. And I'm going to talk to the guy and I'd say, you know, uh, last time I was in here, I got a bottle of this stuff, and I went to jail. I, I don't want to get one out of that box. Um, <laughs> I like the one, about six months ago I came in here and got one, a big blonde showed up. I don't suppose you'd uh, remember what bin that was in. See, I literally didn't know what was going to happen when I drank that, but I knew one thing something was going to happen and it was there was action was going to happen change was going to happen so you'd look at it and then you'd drink it down and let's see what's going to happen and some nights you'd get traveling whiskey and there you are you're sitting in your living room one two three four and then you wake up in wiggins mississippi what the hell am i doing in wiggins mississippi you almost go back you want to go back to the package store and say you know you owe me 338 bucks i had to get all the way back from but well, what I'm saying is, we literally turned our lives over to this stuff. I was perfectly willing to pour it in and then see what happened. Because at least it changed the situation that I was in. So for me, that's what I felt about alcohol. As the years went on, it just caved in on me. I became a daily drinker, uh, withdrew from people almost completely, lost about 50 pounds due to malnutrition, just trying to survive a day at a time, and that's when I ended up with the convulsion and the nut ward and so on down. And that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous when the corpsman came in. Um, I stayed in the nut ward for three more months, and as soon as they let me out, I started drinking again. Uh, because I can said, oh, hell, I'll just do this on my own. Um, and that lasted about a week. And I was an outpatient from the nut ward, and I knew they were going to throw me out of the Marine Corps if I ever drank again. So I called AA on my own. And this was in December 7th of 1964. And a great big guy came over to my house, my sponsor, another Marine, huge guy, filled the whole doorway. And he said, hi, my name is Bill. This is a 12-step call. I talk, you listen. And it was just that fundamental relationship between... And uh, for the first six months, I stayed sober out of fear of sponsor. It was just, 
no matter how bad I wanted to drink, I knew that it would hurt more if he found out I had a drink than the hurting I was doing there. And so I just didn't drink. And as the years went on, and he's still my sponsor, we, we still see each other, and it's been a long time. It's been 27 years. And all kinds of things have happened. I went to a meeting every night for two years and got bounced out of the Marine Corps. I didn't think that was fair. We didn't get promoted. If you, know, if you get passed over for promotion twice, you're gone. And I'm, oh, God, this is a terrible thing happened to me. I remember going to meetings and moaning. Can you believe this? And you're thrown out of the Marine Corps. I went to a meeting every night. What the hell kind of a program is this? Went on and on. Finally, I, nobody would listen to me anymore, so I went into my den and shut the door. If you're going to get a resentment, you want to really build it up, keep people the hell away from you. You can just get in there and work on it by yourself. It's like baking bread, you know. It's just, ah, pretty soon you can't even fit in the room with the resentment, you know. This. I, I, this would probably make a Hollywood movie out of this resentment. I mean, this is probably the biggest tragedy that has ever happened in humankind. Went to a meeting every night and got thrown out of the rink. I mean, God, what? bigger tragedy has ever happened. Move over, Shakespeare. And um, I was in the middle of all this, and taken, I was now talking directly to God, which I only did as a last resort, when I had him. You know what I mean? I, Thanks a lot, God. You know what I mean? They want me to believe in you, and you did this. Round and round. I was in there probably about a week working God over real good. I'd get up every morning and say, well, I'm going to pray every morning, but I still got thrown out of the Marine Corps. I'm going to start that, and then I'll say my prayers. Um, and in the Washington Post one day, I was reading the Washington Post, and there's a little story in the local news section about a presentation team out of Quantico that I was on. It was the instruction team that I was on. And they flew around to other service schools and did a two-day show on the future of the Marine Corps. And it seems that this team had just flown into a mountain in Denver and killed everyone on board. And if I had had my way and been promoted, I would have been there. And so I read that thing, and the first thing that occurred to me was, God knew I had read this. And I felt real guilty. You know, I just closed the paper, you know. Like, <laughs> a lot of good that's going to do. And I remember hemming and hawing and going, well, if you just told me this was going to happen, I wouldn't have been complaining so much about it. getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. Um, and I guess that started the school, the wonderful AA school. And I guess that's what I'd like to talk about in, for my remaining time here, because I, I did see a lot of new people standing up, and, and it's so exciting to have you here. Maybe this is your first conference. And this Alcoholics Anonymous is so much more than we thought it was. You know, Bill writes about this in our literature. We come here and we think that um, what's involved is not drinking. And we finally deal with that. It's the biggest thing in the world. I just go, there, whew. I've finally done everything that's required to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've accepted the fact that I'm not going to drink anymore. If you have a sponsor like I do, he goes, well, that's a good start, but there's more. Go, well, I don't really need any more, and I don't want any more. I know, but I, I think we're going to have to go a little beyond just not drinking. And I said, well, how far beyond? Well, we don't want to go into all of that. We don't want to go into all of that. Well, I'll go into all of that. I'll tell you what I think is involved. All you have to, it's really just a two-step program. All you have to do is not drink and change everything there is about you. 
That's all that's required uh, here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's exactly what happens in this incredible program. Piece by piece, we just go in and get rid of things. I sometimes think sobriety is like a balloon ride. The more you get rid of, the better the view is. The more you throw away, the better the view is. The more unrestricted we come, we become. That's all, you know, Chuck Chamberlain talks about that. Uncover, discover, discard. We just throw away things. That's how, remember there was a, somewhere there was a, um, somebody asked this sculptor, how did you make this beautiful thing? And he said, well, I just found a big block of granite and took away everything that wasn't a beautiful lady. And that's what was left was absolutely magnificent. And that's what happens here. It doesn't look like we're doing anything. Probably doesn't look like when the guy's chopping away, he's throwing stuff away, and you're going, what's coming out of here? And then at the end, all of a sudden, there's this beautiful statue that was there all along. It was just getting rid of all the stuff that wasn't the beautiful statue. And sometimes when we come in here, we think we're dirty, scummy, rotten human beings. Because that's what alcoholism makes us feel like. And we've just collected a whole bunch of junky ideas. And that's all that's rattling around in our heads. And we get a hold of a sponsor and they tell us, you are an incredibly beautiful child of God. That's who you are. That's your total identity. And AA with its anonymity, isn't that that wonderful spiritual foundation? It just strips away all the other identities that we're so proud of. Well, who would you say you are? Well, I'm a lawyer, Harvard, PhD, I'm serving on the board of this, I volunteer for that, and then you listen. That's who you are. You come into AA, and you never hear that. You just go, hi, I'm Fred, I'm just another drunk. I'm just another drunk. I'm Mary, I'm just another drunk. And we're just sharing who we really are without all the excess baggage. And we see the tremendous freedom from just getting rid of those titles just to start with, which is barely scratching the surface of getting rid of old ideas. So sobriety and this beautiful journey and this um, discovery of who we really are is simply a process of getting rid of things, just getting rid of things. And the way I look at it, is we call this a spiritual program, and it certainly is. Our 12 steps are all spiritual principles. And they've been borrowed from religion, from psychology, and from the early experience of the fellowship itself. And they're designed to do something. That's what a spiritual program is, very practical. It's designed to enable us to get access to a power greater than ourselves. AA does not attempt to prove the existence of God. That's what religions do. Alcoholics Anonymous, specialty of Alcoholics Anonymous is convincing you of the need for God. And once you fully accept the need for God, He will appear. It just happens. Because our minds become open to experiencing what has been there all along. It turns out that our human will has the ability to block things out. And character defects, that's all they do. They just block out 
everything that we're entitled to. That's the most serious damage of character defects. Nothing to do with moral judgment. This is just my own opinion. Nothing to do with morals at all. The worst thing about character defects is they block out everything you're entitled to. You know, as our disease progresses and the self-centered prison is established, we have blocked out the rest of the world and we're existing just as a self-centered person inside of ourselves and nothing can get in there. And when nothing can get in there, we claim, from our point of view, that it doesn't exist. So when we hear people talking about the love that freely flows through the world, we wonder what they're talking about. It never gets in here. I don't ever see any of this love you're talking about. And it's true. You don't. Remember when our family would try and come to us with their love? We called it harassment. <laughs> they're bothering me again. They're trying to get in here. They're threatening me. God? No, not a trace of them. I never saw them in there. I, as far as I was concerned, there wasn't one. Because I was blocking out everything that I was entitled to. That's why so many of us think about suicide. It's one way to get out of this thing. Because there doesn't seem to be any answer. So we come in here and we get convinced that the only answer is a higher power. And we get convinced because we have a first step that says we're powerless. And that's how a spiritual program is built. It's on that one word, powerless. All you have to do to become spiritual is admit you're powerless. Because as soon as you admit you're powerless, you've said, unless there's a higher power, I'm screwed. That's what powerless says. You're like a guy who, on the ground, you know, it's a great deal of difference between where we are and then where we end up. Did you ever look at a parachute and watch people pack them? I used to look at them packing them. And guys were in there, they go, boop, 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 bam, bam, they put a couple of springs and then put on your back. And I go, geez, I'd never jump out of a damn plane with one of those things on. I mean, I don't trust them. I've just watched the way they pack those things. As far as I'm concerned, I'm never jumping out with a parachute. I don't believe in parachutes. Now, that's a great statement to make on the ground. But if you accidentally fell out of a plane with a parachute on, I'll bet you we'd change our mind about parachutes real fast. Where's the goddamn ripcord? You know what I mean? Because we have an emergency. It's time to change our mind about this thing. And that's exactly the way I feel about how we come to believe after experiencing powerlessness. Don't worry, I'm not going through all 12 steps. Um, we come to believe in exactly the same way because once powerlessness sets in, we are ready to take the second step. And I've done this in many talks. It's, it's just my best ex explanation of how I think this program works is we, in the second step, after admitting powerlessness, we're very much like the person who is falling from an airplane about to hit the ground. And this is where the second step comes in. I mean, you know, when you first start falling from way up high, relative motion hasn't set in, and you're sort of coasting around the clouds, and you're going, hey, something will happen soon. But it takes a couple of minutes. Now we're getting down near the parking lot, and you start seeing a truck with your name on it. Whoa, that's moving fast. I didn't know I was going this fast. And, ooh. and just sort of imagine that's where you are in your disease of alcohol. You're free-falling. And uh, over the years, it looked like, hey, I can do this forever, but as the bottom of our illness starts coming up fast,
we start seeing what we've been experiencing all these years and it's what happens is a big hand of AA comes down just as we're hitting that truck and it goes grabs you and a voice from on high comes down and says excuse me we're conducting a survey do you believe in God and you see under those conditions we might get a different answer than we got last week my answer was no but I'm willing to reconsider <laughs> due to the circumstances and that's the circumstances is the first step you're powerless once we do that we have to take the first step hundred percent if we don't take the first step hundred percent the rest of the program doesn't seem to work right so it's, that's why we harp on that powerless 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 because if you somehow conclude that you're semi-powerless over alcohol, you're going to semi-need the steps, you're going to semi-need a sponsor, you're going to semi-need a home group, you're almost going to get this and you're almost going to get sober, which is the same as not even coming here. Because almost half measures, none of that works. We have a program that is dependent totally on surrender, and that's where powerless comes in. That convinces us of the need for a higher power and it opens the door to the rest of the program and all that's involved now that we understand that is getting rid of the things that block the higher power to me that's all sobriety is is keeping the channel open resentments anger fear their greatest damage is that they block the flow of the program of the love of our higher power and so the greatest thing we do for each other at meetings, and we, we may not think of that we're tent-stepping each other at meetings, but if you get a good home group and you get close to people who really care for you as much as you care for them, this is how it works. You come to the meeting that night and you've had a bad day and you're choked up to here with some jerk at work did this and everything. And they come in and they see you and they go, Fred, what's the matter? And you go, nothing. Remember that? And that's when they walk in and they go, come on, everybody, Fred's blocked. And they get him and they go, Fred, what the hell is it? Come on, we're not going to let you go. Don't the people at work. And you, okay, well, then tomorrow you got to go make an amendment. I'm making an amendment. Okay, and we unblock Fred. We just get that blockage out of the way so that he can spiritually breathe again. And then it comes in and the program comes in and all of a sudden he goes, Oh, yeah, everything's okay at work. Remember that? That wonderful feeling? As soon as the blockage is gone, it has nothing to do with changing the people at work. It has nothing to do with changing anything except the removing the blockages so that this wonderful reality, the spiritual reality of Alcoholics Anonymous, of a higher power, can freely flow in. So we breathe in this wonderful sobriety. And as it nourishes us, it changes our perspective. And we look back at this mess and we go, hey, it looks okay to me. looks okay to me. What a jackpot. That is what is available here, freely available. And all we have to do is work on the things that's blocking us. There's this very thing that we have built. And in closing, let me just say for those of you that are new, what I think happens as far as you yourself are concerned, this process of sobriety, this wonderful fun, and it's a joyful process, and if it's not joyful, you're doing it wrong. If you're in AA and you're not happy, you're doing it wrong. It's got nothing to do with anything because there's this 
incredible supply of joy and happiness that is just there for the taking if we do it right. And what happens if you will follow the directions of our wonderful steps? You will find that you are throwing things away. You're discarding. You're carving something. You're getting rid of things that just aren't necessary. They're old ideas. They're just things that you've been clinging to. But you get a sponsor and you get going on these inventories and you're taking these steps and stuff is just getting thrown away. And you know what's really happening? You're unwrapping a present. You're unwrapping AA's most precious gift that it's going to give to you. You're unwrapping you. And when we get rid of all the phony ideas, when we get rid of all the garbage that you have piled on there that is not relevant at all, the true beauty of yourself starts coming through. Other people are going to see it first. Mary, what's happening to you? You look wonderful. You're just radiating. I am, and you run, you look in the mirror, you don't see anything. You, you know, wonder what's going on here. But you can sense something. You're being unwrapped. The non-reality of the disease of alcoholism is being discarded. And the true nature of yourself is being exposed. And some of us can't believe it. We thought we were such dirt balls, we can't even believe our own eyes. But if you stick around here long enough, it will become undeniable what a beautiful person you are. And if you don't think that's a gift, it's the greatest. And I'm so glad that you gave me mine. And anything I can do to help you get yours, and those of you that are new, everybody in this room wants to help you discover the magnificent human being that you are. You are beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah.